many, many years ago, there was a guy named Abram. Abram had a name that I think probably Abram grew to dislike because his name sort of pointed out the most disappointing thing about him. How would you like to have that sort of name? The name Abram means great father. <laughs> well, here's the thing about Abram. He was not a father. And he was pretty old already by the time we meet him in the text of the book of Genesis, in chapter 12. The great father was no father at all. Well, Abram lived with his father, and anyway, his, they lived in uh, this place called Ur of the Chaldeans, which is probably where Iraq is today. And then they moved, and they came to a place called Haran, and I couldn't tell you exactly where that is, but he lived there with his father. His father died. And then God showed up. This is Genesis chapter 12. Now, Abraham's already a pretty old man at this point, probably in his 70s. Sorry if I just offended you by saying that someone in his 70s was old. The Lord shows up and he says to Abram, he says, uh, leave your country and go someplace. I'll let you know when you get there. <sighs> what? Uh, I, I, he doesn't say go to such and such place. He says, go and, uh, you know, to the land that I will show you. I don't even know how Abraham, Abram, sorry, he's not Abraham yet. I don't know how Abram knew which way to go, uh, but it, uh, somehow he got up and went. God said, get up and go, and Abram got up and went. Well, that wasn't all that God said. He said, go to the land that I'll show you. I'll make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went. Abram went and he came to the place. And when he got to the place, the Lord said to him, I'll give you to your offspring, I will give this land. Okay, so now we know the land, where at least where it sort of is. So he built there an altar to the Lord. By the way, you should know that the word Lord in this text is a translation of the Hebrew name for God, the name of God. Yahweh, we sometimes say, or Jehovah even, but that's the name 
here in the text. The God that Abram knows is God Yahweh. Well, he, he builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him, and he sort of occupied that area. He moved to a place called Bethel. He built an altar there, called upon the name of the Lord. So Abram has a God, and the God is the Lord, Yahweh. Now there's a famine, and Abram, interestingly, decides that where he needs to go is Egypt. So he goes to Egypt, time passes, time passes. He, goes, he gets in trouble in Egypt because he's afraid of the Pharaoh, so he claims that his wife is really his sister because he's afraid, apparently, Sarai, that's his wife's name, is a beautiful woman. And he's afraid somebody's going to kill him to take his wife, so he says, she's not my wife. Which implies that they can take his wife without killing him. So we know Abram's not a super good guy, even though he has this relationship with God. This is the nature of men in the whole of Scripture. None of them are, are really good, including Abram. Well, anyway. So they, they come through. Because God said, those who dishonor you, I will curse. When, when Abram gives Sarai, the Egyptian people have, start having problems and Pharaoh called Abram and said what have you done why didn't you tell me she was your wife throws them back throws them out of Egypt they come back to the land and uh, now all along Abram's been with his nephew Lot who came with him on this adventure and Abram and Lot get rich they're very successful they're successful in uh, livestock and it turns out now the, they're having conflicts with each other, especially their, their respective servants are getting into fights with each other over the pasture. There's, it's like this. There's not room for both of us in this town. So Abram and Lot make a deal, and Abram is generous. And he says to Lot, you pick what, you, you take what you pick, and I'll take what's left. And that's what happens. That's chapter 13 of the book of Genesis. Where Lot went was a place called Sodom, which you've probably heard of. And uh, Sodom's not, uh, not full of righteous people, as you probably know, even at this stage of the game. Now, the story that makes Sodom famous comes later. So this is before that famous story, you know, where Lot's wife turns into a pillar of salt. You remember that. But this is a long time before that. Anyway, I want you to notice that years are passing. God said, I'll do this. The years are rolling by and Abram's not getting any younger. 
Well, anyway, so Lot's down there in Sodom, and the king of Sodom and a bunch of his local pal kings, they decide to rebel against the big king who's a long ways away. So we're, we're going to rebel again. We're not following that king anymore. That king says no. So he comes, brings a big army and five, uh, four or five other kings, and they come down and they take out the whole area of Sodom and Gomorrah and that whole region. And they take a bunch of slaves and they take a bunch of loot and they go back up north. Way up north, like past Damascus north. Well, anyway, some of them escape. Apparently the king of Sodom gets away. And uh, a bunch of people get away and they come and they report, oh, and one of the people that was taken by the kings from up north is Lot and his whole household and his, all of his goods. This is the story we read about earlier. And they take him captive. Well, word gets back to Abram. And Abram says, no. So he puts together his little army, 318 people, it says it right there. And uh, he puts together his little army and he goes after them. Nobody asked him to do this. Apparently the king of Sodom was not going after them. I think maybe he didn't have much of an army left. But in any case, Abram goes after them. And Abram's, I guess, better at war than they are. And Abram attacks them by night, defeats them. One guy with one army instead of four guys with four armies or five guys with five armies. And Abram defeats them, recovers all the loot and Lot, and all of Lot's family, and all of Lot's stuff, and comes back. So uh, Lot, you know, has sort of got caught in the world's politics by accident. You know, he was just living there. Uh, but he gets carried away, and Abram goes and brings him back. And Abram it comes back, and now we're coming to the text we read earlier. Abram comes back. And he meets with the king of Sodom, which is what he should do, because he has now recovered all of the loot that these foreign kings had stolen from the king of Sodom. So Abraham comes to have a meeting with the king of Sodom. That's really the purpose of the meeting, was to return what had been taken from the king of Sodom. Oh, and by the way, there was another guy there. Another king, actually. The king of Salem. And this is the first time we've heard of Salem. And the king of Salem is this guy named Melchizedek. And he was there too. Now, in the text where we've been reading in the book of Hebrews... In the New Testament, thousands of years later, Jesus is identified as a priest, the high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, 
between the book of Genesis, the passage we just read this morning, and the book of Hebrews, where Jesus is named a priest according to the order of Melchizedek, there's only one other mention of Melchizedek in the whole Bible. From Genesis to Hebrews, which is pretty close to the end, there's only one spot right in the middle where Melchizedek is even mentioned. And that is in the 110th Psalm, which the book of Hebrews is quoting when it says he's a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. High priest forever, I should say. This guy is pretty obscure in the record of the Bible. Melchizedek. Who is he anyway? Well, in the book of Hebrews, we learn some more about him. Well, it's pointed out how he is relevant. And we started looking into this last week when we read in chapter 6 of the book of Hebrews in verse 19, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so in the book of Hebrews, Melchizedek is pictured as a type, a foreshadow of Christ, Jesus. And Jesus, the priesthood of Jesus, is according to the priesthood of Melchizedek. Oh, which we hadn't noticed yet. But let's just go through these things that he's called in the book of Hebrews. <clears throat> First of all, he's the king of Salem. Salem, you'll recognize maybe, is the second part of the name Jerusalem. In fact, it's the same place. The place that would be Jerusalem is the place that Melchizedek is the king of. Zion, the capital city of David. Oh, and by the way, the guy who wrote the 110th Psalm, the other place where Melchizedek is mentioned, is David. And of course, this is used quite a bit in the book of Hebrews, quoting from the 110th Psalm to point out that David, the Psalm begins like this, the Lord said to my Lord, it's pointing out that there's a son of David who 
the Lord God addresses as the Lord God. And what he, one of the things he says when the Lord speaks to my Lord is, you are a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the place that Melchizedek is the king of is the place that would become Jerusalem, Zion, the capital city of David, the, the archetypal Messiah king. This is Melchizedek, the king of Salem. David is the king of Salem. Jesus is the king of Salem. The place, this is also, by the way, which we learned last week, this is the place where God sends Abraham to offer Isaac. The same place. Now that's later. So he meets Melchizedek, and then when it's time to offer Isaac, he goes back to Melchizedek's town. Because Melchizedek has this particular place this is the place of Jesus' sacrifice that fulfills God's promise to Abraham. Well, the second thing we find out about Melchizedek here in the book of Hebrews is he's the priest. Priest of God Most High. Priest of the Most High God. Now, if you looked carefully when we read that passage in Genesis, you would notice this. Well, you have to go on from where we read. Uh, the king, uh, Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. Uh, Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And then he has, Abram has a conversation with the king of Sodom about, you know, how much, how much of the loot does the king of Sodom get back? Because he didn't go get it himself. So now Abram's entitled to it because he went and got it. And so they have this, sounds like there's going to be a negotiation and the king of Sodom says, uh, just, uh, sorry, I got to find it here. Just give me the people, but you take the goods. And Abram says no. Now, we're going to come back to that. He said, Abram says, no, you get everything. I'm not keeping anything. But he says, I have sworn, I have sworn, I have lifted my hand to the Lord, that's Yahweh, God most high. That's the God that Melchizedek is the priest of. So what we have here in, is Abram identifying Melchizedek's God as his God. Yahweh and God Most High are the same, one and the same. So uh, Melchizedek is the priest of Abram's God. And Melchizedek, in this text that we did read, the part that we did read, Melchizedek proclaims him as creator of heaven and earth. This is the same God that we read about in Genesis chapter 1. Melchizedek proclaims him as creator. Now, he met 
according to Hebrews, the next thing we learn about Melchizedek is he met Abram returning from battle. He met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now here's something funny. I don't know, I, I don't know if we want to make too much out of this, but in Genesis, you might have noticed Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Bread and wine. Who else brought out bread and wine? Now, the writer of Hebrews doesn't make anything out of that little detail, but I can't not notice. Melchizedek brought out bread and wine, but what Melchizedek does in the book of Hebrews is he blessed Abram. He met Abram returning from battle. He blessed Abram. Now, this is between the opening promise of God in Genesis chapter 12, and the very next thing in the story of Abram is God uh, formalizes his promise in the form of a covenant. This is where God swears by himself, where God makes an unconditional covenant with Abram. Uh, that is revolving around all of these promises, all of these promises fulfilled in Christ. So the blessing, the service of Melchizedek, the priest, comes after the promise and before the making of the covenant, the formalization of the promise. That's very interesting. Well, so uh, he blessed Abram. Here's something. He blessed Abram. He doesn't credit Abram. Now, what do I mean? He doesn't say, God is blessing you, Abram, because of what you did in going and getting back the people. No. No. In fact, quite the opposite. Did you listen to what the text said? Blessed be Abram by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth creator of all things. God doesn't need Abram to get him anything. Instead, blessed be God most high, he goes on, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Who got Lot back? Well, Abram did, but really God did. God delivered the enemies into Abram's hand. He didn't deliver them into the hand of the king of Sodom. He delivered them into Abram's hand. And so, the high priest of God Most High, also called Melchizedek, presents this blessing. <clears throat> In response to this, Abram worshipped with, with an offering. Abram worshipped God Most High with an offering, 10% of all the recovered stuff. 10% of the loot Abram gives to Melchizedek, the priest of the God Most High. 
Then he keeps none of it for himself. And he swears an oath to, he says, Yahweh, the God most high, that he won't keep any of it. Why? Because he doesn't want the king of Sodom ever to be able to say, I made Abram rich. Here's, here's another way of noticing what's going on here. Abram recognizes his obligation to God Most High. That it's really God Most High that has delivered the enemy into his hand. And he refuses any obligation to the king of Sodom, to the world. He receives an obligation to God Most High, and he denies any obligation to the king of Sodom. And I think that's a natural response to the experience of blessing, of grace. So, what do we know about Melchizedek so far? Well, we know he's the king of Salem, the priest of the Most High God. We know he met Abram returning from the slaughter of the kings. We know he blessed Abram, and we know that Abram responded in worship. And then we have the writer of the book of Hebrews commenting some more about Melchizedek. He says Melchizedek is also king. King of Salem. I'm sorry. He's first of all, by translation of his name, king of righteousness. Now, that's just a direct translation of the name Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Zedek means righteousness. Melchi means king. King of righteousness. It's just, he says this right in the text. By translation, first of all, he's the king of righteousness. And then, of course, what, what, who, what is he the king of? Salem. King of peace. King of peace. Who else is the prince of peace? And the king of righteousness. Well, this is just a point that uh, the writer of Hebrews is using to connect Melchizedek's priesthood with the priesthood of Jesus Christ. He says he's the king of peace. He's the king of the very place where reconciliation is made. Total, complete reconciliation is made between God and sinful man at the place Melchizedek is king of, the place that goes by the name Salem, meaning peace, meaning restored concord between us sinners and righteous God. Now, when God brought Melchizedek and Abram together, God has kind of a long view of things, it seems. Because here he brings this guy together with Abram, the father of the faithful, and he brings them together thousands of years before he brings the second, and there's only two, priest in the order of Melchizedek on the scene. 
And the writer of the book of Hebrews is using that to encourage us to show us the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ, the peacemaker, the prince of peace, the king of righteousness. Then he says this about Melchizedek. It's curious, you know, there's no mention of Melchizedek's heritage or offspring. No genealogy of Melchizedek. That's kind of unusual in the Old Testament. There's plenty of genealogies of Abram. In fact, right here in chapter 11, before we get to the story of Abram, there's just a big, long genealogy of how do we get from Noah to Abram. Melchizedek just comes out of nowhere. No mention of his father, his mother, his grandfather. No mention of his children. No mention of his birth. No mention of his death. Interesting. And here's what the writer of the book of Hebrews says. He's without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. So he has no birth or death. Now, I think we might assume that the man Melchizedek was born and died. However, there's no record. There's in the story of the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham, there's no Melchizedek just appears and disappears. And he's a priest to Abraham. So this is a type, a type of his eternality, like he says, resembling, uh, really we should translate that, made like the Son of God. And being made like the Son of God, he abides a priest perpetually. He's always a priest. Melchizedek is a priest today. The, t the text here in Hebrews says, resembling the Son of God, he continues. That's a present tense verb. In other words, when the writer of Hebrews wrote this, Melchizedek is continuing as a priest. And he does so perpetually. How can that be? Well, he's the priest of Abraham. He's the priest of Abraham, and Abraham is the father of all who trust in God in Christ. Abraham is the father of all faith. And so serving as priest to Abraham is serving as priest to you and me. And of course, he's a model for the priest that makes all of this real and possible in the end, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the second, and there's only two, priest according to this order. Jesus said to the people around him, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. When the Son of God became man, Abraham 
was celebrating. Probably Melchizedek, too. Now, I should mention that some people think Melchizedek actually is the Son of God. I don't know that we can say that. We also can't rule it out entirely. Because we do know that the Son of God, before he was incarnate in the man Jesus, did appear to Abraham. And to, well, anywhere God appeared. So, <clears throat> some people would say that. I don't, I don't think it's necessary to conclude that, but it can't rule it out either. He's the priest of Abraham, and the priest of Abraham is the all-time priest. Because Abraham is the father of the fulfillment of, of the promise people. The promise comes to Abraham, and then to Isaac, and then to Jacob, and then to Israel, and then to David, and then to Jesus. And Jesus is the path through which God blesses all the families of the earth in the nation that he has made from scratch in the man Abram. Abram is an old man. He has no kids. Abraham, it's kind of like Abram. Abram means the great father. Abraham means father of many nations. And so Melchizedek is the priest to the father of many nations, to the, the fountainhead of faith. And we are in the place of Abraham. Christ is in the place of Melchizedek. We're in the place of Abraham. As we read at the end of chapter 6 here in the book of Hebrews, Jesus is our high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek, a quotation of Psalm 110. There's an unconditional promise of blessing. An unconditional promise of blessing determined in advance. Abraham was just there one day with his father in Ur when God shows up and says, I will do this. Abraham had done nothing. There's no indication that Abraham even paid any attention to God before that. God started it. And God promises it. And then God works through these crazy wars and things, through these things, to bring Abraham to the point of recognizing him, where Melchizedek blesses him and Abraham worships God in response. And then the very next thing is God makes this covenant sure and certain. There's a combination in the priesthood of Melchizedek in the priesthood of Jesus. There's a combination of righteousness and peace. You know, sometimes righteousness requires strife. Justice, when it comes in contact with sin, is not peaceful. And Jesus is described in the book of John as full of grace and truth. That's quite a combination. Here we have righteousness and peace existing in one person, 
and that is in the priesthood of Jesus, our Savior. He's the eternal Son, the perfect image of God. He's the one who made satisfaction for sin and is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is in Psalm 110. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies my footstool. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's all in that messianic psalm written by David hundreds of years before Jesus. And so he's the one seated at the right hand of the majesty on high, which has already been declared here in the book of Hebrews, right in the very opening sentence. He's the mediator of God's blessing to all of Abraham's offspring. And what do I mean, Abraham's offspring? Those who believe in God. Those who trust themselves to him. And Abraham, of, of course, is described as he believed God. Excuse me. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. How can that be only by the sacrifice of Christ? If Jesus, the eternal son, doesn't become flesh and give his life a sacrifice for sin, it would just be wrong to credit as righteous sinners. You couldn't call God good if he credited you as righteous apart from the sacrifice of Christ. And so he makes satisfaction for sins, mine and yours. And so his priesthood, according to the order of Melchizedek, is complete. And then at the end of chapter 6, we read this last week, this hope that we have in Christ leads us behind the veil. What does that mean? It leads us right into the presence of a holy God. And so... We are clothed in his righteousness, and we have fellowship with God Almighty in him. And this is the significance of this priesthood according to the order of Melchizedek. It's not like the priesthood of the law of Moses, and that's where we go next week. The comparison between the superseding priesthood to the God Most High, according to the order of Melchizedek, and the priesthood of the Levites, the sons of Aaron. What's the difference? <clears throat> well, that's next Sunday. But I want to encourage you, God has in Christ reconciled sinners to himself. And that could include you. The eternal son has made satisfaction for sins. Yours maybe. And he is seated at the right hand and he is ready to come again. And he is the mediator of these unconditional blessings. Just like Abraham, you don't earn this. He gives it to you. You just receive it. And then, of course, a certain type of response of worship is anticipated. That only makes sense. A certain level of generosity might be expected 
like Abram exhibits to the king of Sodom. Where, because I've been dealt with generously, I can deal generously. Because I am reconciled to him, I can be reconciled to you and to anyone else. Because I have forgiveness, I can extend forgiveness. This is a long story. And God had it all in mind way, well, really before he even started anything. So we are the recipients of this great priesthood of the Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks. Lord, we pray that our lives might reflect the reality of these things. That we would see the depth of your love in the person of Jesus Christ. That we might be transformed by that realization. We pray because we only can pray in his name for your glory. Amen.